on the calendar. And I know it may, you may feel like it's an awful time to do it. I think it's a perfect time to do it. This is God's will, it's God's timing, it's God's plan. So uh, on August 3rd, Monday, August 3rd, 21 days of sacrifice, we just ask you to sacrifice something that's important to you for 21 days. I think if everyone just would give up social media and the news, that would be amazing. Just give it up for 21 days. You would find, somebody told us, Sister Murphy and I recently, that I've gotten off of all social media and I can't explain how better I feel with my life. Uh, so do try 21 days of it. Or it could be a food, particular food, a cold drink, coffee, bread, whatever it is. Let the Lord lead you in that way. And uh, we'll have, we're going to see God. God's going to do some great things. I know it in Jesus' name. Thank the Lord. Our worship team's coming back. Clap your hands one more time. Let's praise the Lord again as they come back to lead us in worship.
God beginning a work. Not just here, but around the world, you've been a witness to God beginning a work like we've never seen before. I know it in my spirit. But there's people here today that are sitting in the building today. God is wanting to take you by the hand. I'll tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and extend it to those that are watching live stream today. It's time to leave your shoreline. It's time to leave your shoreline. You've been camped out where you are right now for too long. God's inviting you to go on a journey with Him. And it's time to leave your mentality. It's time to leave your perception. It's time for you to leave even the way you believe. have to understand that God wants to take his church you've heard this before I don't care about all of that I know what I've heard and God is wanting to take us to a place of faith that we've never been before you've heard all that those taglines you've heard all that before but I don't mean it that way now God wants to bring his church to a place where you stare up at the heavens and say what manner of God are you can do these things. So there's people in the building today. If you'll leave your shoreline today, you'll walk out of here full of the Holy Ghost. You'll walk out of here healed. You'll walk out of here delivered. Whatever's going on in your life that the devil has you bound, we'll get to that part of this story one of these days. But you'll walk out of here a different person. But you have to be willing to leave your thought process the way you think and all of that. You have to leave that on the shore and get in the boat and go with Jesus. And when you're exhausted, when your faith is exhausted, God can do something for you. Thank the Lord. There's one more thing I want to say to our live streamers. And I've gotten permission to do this before our speaker comes. Somebody told me last Sunday morning that they have a friend it's not, I don't believe they're apostolic. They, they attend church, but they're not apostolic. It's okay. But they said, you know what? I'm not going back to church. I want to stare straight into the camera while I'm saying this. So we're not going back to church anymore. We're just going to stay home and watch live stream from now on. This is working for us. That is not the will of God that you do that. The Bible said to forsake not the assembling of yourself together. Don't forget that. You're, I don't care what you do at home. You're not going to get it the same way you do that you would if you were here. Just don't, don't think that. Don't start that. You'll lose your family. Things will start falling apart in your life. It's okay for a season. But after a while, you need to come back to the house of God. You listen to pastor. I'm speaking in the authority of the Holy Ghost today. You need to come back to church. It's time to come back to church. Let your faith overtake your fear. And you come back to the house of God. You don't have the gifts of the Spirit in your home. There's a lot of things that don't happen in your home. You need to be in church. So don't fall into that trap. Thank the Lord. Leave your shoreline. Leave your shoreline. Uh, I'm going to preach that here in a couple of Sundays. Maybe we'll see. Thank the Lord. I love Brother Mark Wheeler. And before he comes to preach today, and I know that God has given him a word. Brother Mark walks with God. He does. He walks with God every day. His life is committed. He's committed to the kingdom. He walks with God every single day. And I know that God has given him a word from the Lord. But before he comes, I want to just send out a great big thank you to our praise team. Uh, pastor's backed up a little bit. I pulled back a little bit just to kind of recoup some things, and then God did it. God did what I, I hope would happen, even exceeded that. But our ministry team, they have been used in the Holy Ghost. Um, God has used them exceeding mightily. In the pulpit with Brother Jason a couple of Sundays ago, Brother Dave last Sunday. Brother Mark's preaching this Sunday. Brother Ben's preaching next Sunday. I've used them on Wednesday night. And uh, it's, it's ministered to me greatly. And I love and appreciate our 
praise team. Let's give them some appreciation here this morning. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. God bless you today. Remain standing. Brother Mark's coming to preach to us the word of God. Lend him your ear and your heart, and let's see what God will do here today. Amen. Well, look, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The presence of God is in this place, and I'm not going to get in the way. I'm not going to get in the way. We're going to go right into prayer, and then we're going to preach what the word of God has given me. And what I feel the Lord is speaking to the kingdom, to the kingdom today. I want to be very clear on that. This is not just Grace Church. What you are is the kingdom. And we've got to understand that. And we've got to act like that. So let's go to God in prayer. God, we're so thankful for your spirit, your mercy, your grace, your love, your presence that's in this place. God, come and move. Come and move like only you can. Let our hearts, let our minds, let our spirits be changed by your word and draw us nearer. God, draw us nearer to you than we've ever been before. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Keyboard players, Eli, great job. Y'all are released in Jesus' name. Wonderful job. So we're going to get right into the word. And to start, I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Cliff Young. By the name of Cliff Young. The Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon snakes across Australia's beautiful southeast corner covering a distance of almost 550 miles. In its time, it was considered one of the most difficult races to com complete, even by some of the most seasoned runners who were used to running across the hottest deserts and most barren terrains on the earth. In 1983, Cliff Young decided he would enter into the inaugural event. He wasn't your average athlete. And as you can tell from the picture, he probably wasn't your average anything. He was a cowhand. He was frequently responsible for rounding up cattle after violent thunderstorms. And he didn't do this using GPS, didn't have a fancy ATV, didn't ride around on horses. He did it all on foot, wrangling in cattle from an area over the size of a small U.S. state. He knew he had high levels of stamina, but this was another matter altogether because most of the entrants were super fit runners in their prime. And Cliff, at the time, was 61 years old with little to no competitive experience at all. However, the one thing Cliff did possess was a burning belief that he could complete the race. He didn't have any self-limiting beliefs. And there were calls for him to be banned from the race for his own safety. But whether rules excluded runners that were too young, they didn't say anything about runners that were a little bit too old. So the organizers reluctantly let Cliff run in the race. It was a hot day in Sydney when Cliff turned up wearing his overalls and his work boots, inviting weird looks and chatter from some of the 150 competitors and growing interest from the press and spectators. The race started, and to no one's surprise, the farmhand was soon lagging behind the very seasoned runners. He had a very strange way of running. He barely lifted his feet off the ground and moved forward, looking more like a cross-country skier than a distance runner. Halfway through the night, however, Cliff rather remarkably and surprisingly took the lead. Rather than stopping for the traditional sleeping breaks that most ultra runners take part in, Cliff took a fraction of the time that others took and just kept running. By the following morning, much to the amazement of everybody, Cliff had built up a substantial lead. It was an impressive performance, but the old-timer was inevitably going to relinquish his lead when he needed to stop for a proper break himself. Only thing is, he never did so. He was driven by the belief that he could rest as long as he wanted to when the race was over. Nobody had told Cliff that he was supposed to stop for six hours every evening. So he just kept running and kept running and kept running. Cliff did the unexpected in finishing the race, but he did the truly remarkable in not just winning, but amassing a staggering 10-hour winning margin. Cliff Young decided what was possible for him. Not his family, not his friends, not even society as a whole. 
He set the parameters in his life and he decided what he would believe about what he could achieve, who he was, and how he would be remembered. At 61 years old, an amateur rewrote the book on distance running. And suddenly others realized what was possible and started to believe that if Cliff could do it, so could they. They didn't suddenly increase their stamina overnight, but they did increase their belief in what was possible. No athlete since then has ever won the Sydney Melbourne race while taking regular sleep breaks. You see, Cliff Young understood the power of believing, but not just believing, what happens when you couple belief with action? And Cliff Young mastered a concept that Jesus himself instructed his disciples and subsequently all of us to do in John chapter 14. And I'm going to read it to you. You can remain seated. But he instructs them to believe. In John 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way you know. And Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And this is a verse we all love. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Then Philip joins the club. He says, Philip saith unto Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. In verse 11, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe for the very works sake. So I want to preach to you today. Believe. Believe. Because here in John 14, we find Jesus speaking to his disciples a word of peace and comfort. And just to give you a little context of what we're looking at here in John 13, this is the setting of the Last Supper. And the disciples find out a few things. In, verse, in chapter 13, they find out, one, that Jesus is going to lay down his life. This is one of the last times that they're going to be seen with Jesus. He's getting ready to go to the cross and fulfill his purpose and his ministry of what he came here to do. Second, that one of the 12 was going to betray him in the process. A little bit awkward. Third, that Peter himself would deny Jesus three times. Oh, and this is also the chapter where Jesus casually takes on the form of a servant and washes the disciples' feet. It's a pretty intense dinner. I'd imagine that they're all quite a bit on edge and unsure of what to do next. I'd imagine that the thoughts that are running through their minds, the years of service, the years of work and preparation, the years of ministry and sacrifice. Because keep in mind, these guys left everything that they knew. They left their families, they left their homes, they left their jobs, and they followed Jesus. Their world seemed to be changing and turning upside down in almost an instant. Now remember, Jesus planned for this. Jesus understood this day was coming. This is what his whole ministry was about. The disciples didn't. So they're now faced with the task of dealing with uncertainty and the unexpected. And they probably handled it just about as good as we have, which, if we're honest with ourselves, isn't very good. I don't do well with the unexpected or uncertainty. I like to know. But imagine the sense of panic and worry and fear and unbelief. And in John 14, we see Jesus speak to the chaos of their spirits like only he can. And he provides the remedy to the troubled mind. He instructs his disciples to believe. Jesus, in just a few words, seemed to speak an element of peace to the worried heart. You believe in my father. Believe also in me. And Philip, not afraid to be vulnerable, in this moment he speaks up and he asks a question. If I'm at that dinner, I'm not asking any questions. I'm just not. I'm going to sit back, relax, and see how this thing plays out and hope I'm not the one that betrayed him. 
But Philip isn't like me. He speaks up. He's unafraid to be vulnerable. And he asked Jesus, well, show us the father. If you said we're going to see the father, show us the father and then we'll believe you. Philip, on the backdrop of what I'm sure was an emotional journey, seems to add fuel to the fire of an already difficult night. He opens up about his unbelief. Now, we understand from verse 8 that Philip either didn't understand or he didn't believe that the Father and God are one. He either doesn't understand or doesn't believe that Jesus is God incarnate, that Jesus is God wrapped in flesh, because he asked him to show us the Father, and then we'll believe you. He opens up about his unbelief and his questions. And Philip in this moment becomes a mirror for all of us. Because at some point in time in our life, we will struggle with unbelief. At some point in time in our life, we will question. We will ask the question, what do I believe? So what is belief? I believe that believing is the door. In Hebrews 11 and 6, it says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I want you to imagine Jesus speaking those words himself. Probably sounds something like this. But without faith, it is impossible to please me. For any must believe that I am. That I am what? That I am one real. That I am two relevant. That I am three whatever you need me to be. We have to first believe. See, belief is the doorway to God. It's the prerequisite for salvation. Before the Spirit is ever poured out, we have to go through the door of belief. Before we ever repent, we have to go through the door of belief. Before we're ever baptized, filled with the Spirit, we first have to go through the door of belief. Before you pray your prayer, you have to believe. The very fact that you prayed a prayer means that somewhere inside of you, you believe. The first step to any walk with God starts the same. It walks through the door of belief. Let me help you understand this a little bit better. For those of us that are in the building today, those of us that are present, when you walked from outside of the building to inside of the building, you walk through a door. You walk through a door. I didn't see anybody climbing through a window. Nobody dropped in from the ceiling. Every one of us came through the door. And it is the same in the kingdom of God. Every person that comes into the kingdom enters through the door of belief. Every relationship with Jesus, no matter the level, must first walk through the door of belief. It is impossible. It is impossible to engage the spirit on any level without first believing. And in John 10 and 9, Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out. You see, Every prayer that was ever prayed walked through the door of belief. Every healing that ever took place walked through the door of belief. Your faith walked through the door of belief. The very fact that you have faith means you walk through the door of belief. And every miracle that ever took place walked through the door of belief. And in most cases, in most cases, we believe what we believe because it's proven to be true. Truth is revealed, it usually gets easier to believe. See, truth and belief are made together correctly point to God Himself. So, as believers, as Christians, as children of God, where do we find our truth? While we live in a world that creates its own and chooses to believe it, where do you, the spirit filled believer, find your truth? Because if we're going to believe, it's important to believe the truth. John 14 and 6, the scripture we read, Jesus says unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come up to the Father but by me. Jesus, while praying the famous prayer of John 17, says thy word is truth. The book of wisdom in Proverbs 23, it tells us to buy the truth and sell it not. See, in the life of the believer, the decision has to be made to believe the truth. And the truth happens to be Jesus himself in the word that he gave. I'm getting ready to jump on your toes real quick. Y'all don't hate me. I'm going to give it to you like the spirit gave it to me. 
our filter of truth should not come from the media outlets that we pledge our allegiance to. Our filter of truth should not come from the memes that we share on Facebook that support our opinions and beliefs. Our filter of truth should come from nothing but the infallible, never-changing, never-ending word of God. See, we have to firmly believe God and the word that he gave us to be true. Because this is where the enemy attacks. He often attacks what we believe to be true. You don't believe me? See Adam and Eve. Let's take a trip to the garden. The serpent comes up to Eve and he asks her a question that he already knew the answer to. And when she responded with what God said, notice she responded with the word of God. When she responded with what God said, he questioned the truth of it. And he deceived her into believing a lie. Sound familiar? It's still happening to this day. See, the enemy questions the truth of the word of God to believers and deceives people into believing a lie. He deceives them into believing a variation of the truth. Let me help you again. A variation of the truth is a lie. Because truth doesn't vary. Truth doesn't change. See, Satan didn't even care that she ate the fruit. He didn't care. He cared that she questioned whether to believe the word of God. And we think Satan is mad at us because of our personalities. Think he's mad at us because of how much we gave in the offering. He's mad at us because of the amount we worshiped. Let me help you understand this today. Satan doesn't like you because you believe. Satan can't stand you because you believe. He doesn't care about anything else other than the fact that you believe. And as humans, we often believe what's proven to be true in our life. And we often don't fully believe it until we see it. And it seems like the older we get, I just turned 25 and I'm halfway to 50 and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. But the older we get, the more skeptical we are. And this is why I think Jesus tells us that unless we don't become like little children, we can't enter, the, enter into the kingdom. Because children aren't as skeptical as we are. They'll believe easy. They'll take you at your word and believe it until you give them a reason not to. See, the, the faith and the belief of a child will take God at his word and believe what he said because their father spoke it. And if their father spoke it, it has to be true. See, we've all heard it. We've all used the phrase, right? I have to see it to believe it. I'm not the only one, right? Said it a few times. Because we think seeing is believing. We think seeing is believing. And having to see it for ourselves becomes the lens or the filter of what's true in our life. See, when you were a kid, somebody taught you that the sky was blue, right? And you believed it because you walked outside one day and you looked up you're like, huh, I guess they were right. And you believe this, this guy was blue. Let me ask you a question. Can you see tomorrow? No, there's only one who can. But you're going to go to bed tonight, and Lord willing, you're going to wake up in the morning, and it's going to be Monday, and you believe that because it's proven to be true. See, some things go against practical wisdom and they stretch the limits of what our minds can ultimately see and become the filter of what we believe. And the Bible is full of instances where people didn't see it until they believed it. It's full of them. See, in, in 2 Kings, Elisha, he's with his servant and they find themselves surrounded by a Syrian army. The servant sees it and he runs into Elisha and he's like, bruh, we're in trouble. We got to do something here. They got us around it, and we're probably going to die. And Elisha just casually looks up and is like, oh, don't worry about that. There are more that are with us than that are with them. It'll be all right. And if I'm the servant, I'm like, huh, 
You sure? Because I just counted the Syrian army and I got to three and then I looked at us. And I don't follow your math here. But we know then Elisha prays and he prays that the servant could see. Because Elisha knew that if the servant could see it, then he would believe it. So he prays that the servant see and his eyes are opened and he sees the mountains full of an army. And now he believes it. And none more famous than Thomas in John chapter 20, who straight up says it. I will not believe Jesus is risen until I put my hands in his hands and my fingers in his side. I will not believe it. I have to see it. So Jesus shows up again, makes another trip in the 40 days he has left, like he has time for this. Shows up again. He's like, all right, Thomas, you need to see it to believe it. Check it out. Shows him his scars, shows him his wounds, and now Thomas believes. But what Jesus says to Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29 is key. Because Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. See, when it comes to the kingdom of God, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. When it comes to the kingdom, seeing is not believing. See, we like the idea of being healed, but do we fully believe it? We like the idea of particles returning home, but do we fully believe it? We love the idea of uncontrollable revival, but do we fully believe it? See, some of us are still bound because we hope that God will free us. But we don't fully believe he will. And in the kingdom, believing is seeing. I wonder if we would see more if we sold out to believing more. See, some of us are saying, I'll believe it when I see it. And God is saying, but if you believe it and act like it, I'll show you. And this, this is the dilemma of the believer. This is where we struggle. Because as humans, we're conditioned to believe what we see. All my life growing up, I've been told, don't believe everything you hear. We're conditioned to believe what we see, not always what we hear. And where it gets dangerous is we brought that condition into the church. And too often we believe the reality of our circumstance rather than the promise of God. See, our belief is too often tied to what we see and not what God said. Sometimes we believe in the nature of humanity more than we believe in the supernatural sovereignty of God. But let me ask you this. Who created human nature? And does God not control and plan for what he creates? And if we could learn to believe that, then we would stop placing our belief in the performance of nature and flesh, but in the all-powerful working of the Spirit and what God spoke over us and in, who, in what he said we are. See, our unbelief places the limitations on God and reduces him down to the box that we squeeze him into and tell him, you can only work in these parameters that make sense to me. So the believer faces a decision when confronted with the inevitable trials of life. What do I believe? What do I believe? Do I believe what I see or do I believe what God said? And just in case you forgot what God said, let me remind you. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. In Romans 8, he said, who shall, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not give us all things freely? He said, I will never leave or forsake you. I'll be with you always. 
So the believer is faced with a decision. Do I believe what I see? Or do I believe what God said? Do I believe the chaos of my circumstance? Or the peace of the promise of God? And this is where most of us fall. Somewhere between believing. Because we, we somewhat believe, but not enough for it to materialize into action. See, the spirit believes, but the flesh doesn't. The spirit wants to be free, but the flesh likes the attention. The spirit believes, but the flesh doesn't. And the battle is fought here. It's fought in our minds. And Jesus understood that. And that's why, that's why I think, just me, that's why I think Jesus took the crown of thorns on his head. Everything Jesus did on Calvary was on purpose. Every drop of blood, every nail, every scar, it was all on purpose. And I believe he took the crown of thorns and wore it to the cross to win the victory over our minds, to give us mental freedom. I feel this in the spirit, I'm going to say it. If you struggle with mental health, mental illness, I want to be very, very clear. Jesus understood that you would struggle. And he took a crown of thorns to Calvary to win the freedom of your mind. You can be free in your mind. You don't have to struggle with mental illness. God can work with you. He's willing, he's ready, and he's able to work with you to set you free. So we find ourselves in the dilemma of the believer between believing the promise of God and believing what we see. And this is where we get off track because we struggle with the fact that belief and unbelief can live in the same heart. In Mark 9, the man cries, Lord, I believe, but help mine unbelief. And we struggle with that because we feel like we have to be perfect. We've got to believe it all the way. But I want to help you. God isn't afraid of your unbelief. He's seen it before. You're not bringing anything new to Jesus. He's seen it before. And I'm here to tell you today, don't believe what you see. Believe what God said. I'm going to ask you a question for all my Lecrae fans out there. In the words of Lecrae. He said, what would it take to make you believe? More fire from the sky? Another parting of seas? Think about that. What would it take to make you believe? Let me tell you a little bit about what I believe. I believe in John 1 and 1 where Jesus said, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. In verse 14 where he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I believe that Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in flesh. I believe Deuteronomy 6, 4 that said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I believe John 10 and 30 that says, I and my Father are one. I believe Acts 2 where Peter stands up and says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I believe in the power of prayer. And Matthew where he says, Again I say unto you, that if you two shall agree touching anything, it shall be done. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. I believe, as Dave so wonderfully preached last week, there's nothing too hard for God. I believe in apostolic demonstration. I believe that greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. I believe in miracles, signs, and wonders. I believe that he that believeth on me greater works shall he do. When I ask you again, what would it take to make you believe? More fire from the sky? Another parting of seas? Grace Church, it's time that we believe. It's time for us to make up our minds to believe the promise of God. To believe what God spoke over us. It's time for us to believe what Jesus said. Whatever the cost may be. It's time for us to believe. I'm coming to a close. I want to tell you, share with you one more thing as I close. 
In February of 1908, a tin shop was converted into a makeshift church led by a man named Henry Prentiss, who had received the baptism of the Holy Ghost at the Azusa Street Mission near Los Angeles. This is the church a man named Garfield T. Haywood and his wife Ida received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and began their spiritual training. In February of 1909, just one year after their conversion, they began holding meetings in an empty storeroom at 12th and Lafayette Street in downtown Indianapolis. And after only a few months, the services had to be moved to attend at West 13th and Canal Street. Consistently bad weather made this location difficult, and a small frame building in the downtown area was purchased. Elder Haywood later felt led to hold a convention for area Pentecostals, but certainly didn't have enough room in their present building. So a building on 11th and Senate was rented for the occasion and eventually became the new home for the fast-growing congregation. If you'll stand with me. In early spring of 1916, Brother Glenn Cook, an elder from the Azusa Street Mission, who had accepted baptism in Jesus' name and oneness doctrine, arrived in Indiana and was received by Bishop Haywood and his congregation at 11th and Senate. On March the 6th, 1916, Bishop Haywood and 465 of his members were baptized in Jesus' name in Eagle Creek, marking the first apostolic baptisms east of the Mississippi River. J. Roswell Flower, the general secretary of the organization Bishop Haywood was a part of, and an opponent of the oneness movement, sent a telegram to Bishop Haywood warning him of Brother Cook's error. The message probably would have read something like this. By now I am sure you have heard the teaching of the oneness message. This message is not to be believed. It is false teaching and will not be accepted by our organization. The message, however, had arrived too late. Bishop Haywood, fully convinced and believing the veracity of Cook's message, sent a telegram back saying, your message came too late. We've already believed. Bishop Haywood became one of the most effective and avid proponents of oneness theology, but he had the choice to believe the truth. And his answer was, we've already believed. There is no turning back. There is no looking back. I found the truth, and we've already believed. In Grace Church, it's time for us to adopt that attitude today. See, the enemy is coming. He's coming. He's tried to whisper the, the messages of fear, the messages of hate, the messages of division. The enemy's coming. He's tried to send us the message. But I think it's time for us as a church to square our shoulders and to look the enemy directly in the eye and tell him, your message came too late. We've already believed. We've already believed. We've already believed. When the enemy comes against the promise of God, when he comes against what God says you are, tell him your message came too late. I've already believed. When he says you can't be healed, your message came too late. I've already believed. What is the enemy trying to make you believe today? Wherever you are, wherever you are, every hand lifted, every heart open. Now it's not the time to log off. Now it's not the time to disconnect. The Spirit of the Lord is moving. The Spirit of the Lord is moving. us to establish the fact that we've already believed. We're not turning back. We're not looking back. We've already believed for our healing. We've already believed for our freedom. That's it. Let your praise rise. Wherever you are, make wherever you are your altar. Make wherever you are your altar and let your praise rise. 
That's it, that's it. Keep that going. Let your belief rise in the place today. Put the enemy on notice. Put the enemy on notice the lies that he's trying to deceive you with. You've already believed. Wherever you are, make that your altar. Let's take some time. Let's take some time in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's draw closer to Him. If your belief is shaken, God can fix that. He's not afraid of your unbelief. You give it to Him. If you open your heart and open your spirit, Jesus can help your unbelief. Oh, <laughs> 
Christ. But I took him serious. Thomas said to his friends, I'm not going to believe until I can feel his hands and feet and whatnot. And so Jesus had to show up again like he had time for that. I get the point. One of the greatest attributes that God has is his patience with humanity. And I believe he's wanting to blow our world apart right now. But he's going to have to wait a little while for us to catch up with him. And he's going to be patient with him. I'm not here to insinuate that people don't believe. We're just a little skeptical right now. We're a little afraid right now. God's going to be patient with us, Grace Church. It'll be, a, it'll be a sunny or two before we all kind of can get back and get up and running again. But as soon as God gets our attention, we're going to stare at him and say, What manner of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Praise God. I'm glad to tell you today, there's things happened here today that I'm not going to say publicly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't embarrass anybody. But there's some things that's happened here publicly that's blowing my mind right now. I'll tell you about it one day. One day I'll tell you about it. When I'll have permission from some people. But uh, when we get God's attention and He gets ours, and we start showing up, God's going to do some amazing things. But I'm happy to tell you, Pastor Murphy is leaving the shoreline. We've done this before, and it gets weird, and everybody gets freaked out. But you're going to be okay. The ship is staying the same. The disciples stayed the same. Jesus stayed the same. They just saw him different. That's what we have to understand. So we're out in the middle of it now, folks. We ain't going back. I don't know what church is going to be like in the future, but it ain't going to be like it used to be. I don't know what's ahead of us, but Pastor has left that old shoreline, and we're headed to something new, and we're going to see some amazing things in the Holy Ghost. Thank the Lord. Now, one more thing before I let you go. Last Sunday, and this is the reason I pulled back from the pulpit, Two or three, Sundays, three Sundays ago, I believe, I preached a message I titled Torn Between Two Lovers. You might remember that. I've said it before. It was all I could do to get to the pulpit. This building was spinning. I was pouring sweat. I felt like I was being assaulted by every demon the devil could possibly muster up to assault me with that day. I don't know how I got through that sermon. I was seeing stars. I even had blacked out a little bit. You have seen me not be able to stand here and worship, just kind of sitting down. There is a liberty in my body right now. I've almost been tempted to run the aisles like that 61-year-old running that marathon. I do want to be wise, but God has performed a work in my body, in my mind, in my spirit. I feel like I'm 10 years younger. I'm not going to go past that. I'm not going to get stupid. But God has worked a miracle in my life, and I want to share that with you. You know why? Because I believe, and I've never stopped believing. Even when I was down, I still believed. I'm down, but I'm not out. And God has come through. we got some great times ahead of us, Grace Church. Let's clap our hands to the Lord one more time in conclusion today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Brother Mark. Let the Lord use you today. If you would, let him know how much you love him. Appreciate him. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night in Jesus' name.